Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me on another episode of the Ready, Set, Mindful podcast. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Justin Foster. He is the founder of Excelling Edge, which is his company where he's a cognitive performance consultant. Hey, Justin, how's it going? Hi, Carrie. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm excited. Of course, me too. So why don't you go ahead and just let everyone know maybe what a cognitive performance consultant is and a little bit about your company, Excelling Edge, and the things that you do there. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much. With the Excelling Edge, what we do is we really focus on helping high performers uh, unleash their potential by giving them the the best cognitive performance training um, and technology that we can to help them uh, really take their performance to the next level or get that competitive edge. Um, And so my background is in mental performance. Um, So working with more traditional sport and performance psychology concepts um, and skills and strategies. Um, but really, you know, my, our company really focuses on three different things, um, culture development, coaching coaches, and then cognitive performance. And so when you think about cognitive performance, it kind of encompasses your typical mental performance concepts in terms of, you know, breathing, routines, confidence, mindset, if you will, Um, and, you know, all the, a a number of, obviously it's a a vast toolkit there that we work with um, and and really teaching, you know, equipping high performers with the right kind of tools, tools, skills, and and plans, competition plans and mental performance plans around that. But then we also do talk about cognitive performance more specifically in the way that uh, oftentimes what's referred to as athlete cognition, Mm. which is how athletes think, decide and react or execute under pressure. And kind of the neuroscience of that and, and how we train the mechanisms that allow us to see things better, make better decisions, more accurate decisions, and ultimately execute when it really counts. That's what performance is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the third part and the way that we do kind of the mental performance or cognitive performance side is looking at the way that we help uh, high performers regulate uh, their mind and body. Mm-hmm. And so we use biofeedback and neurofeedback um, to really get after that and provide them with a kind of a training ground, if you will, um, to really hone in, you know, things like composure, heart rate, breathing, and also uh, getting into that kind of calm mind. You know, we talk about being present focus or mindfulness training, but being able to use neurofeedback to provide more of a feedback loop to, am I doing that? Well, I'm completing this task, but how well am I focused on the task at hand? How active is my brain during that process? Mm-hmm. And that really helps us expand really the cognitive load that individuals can handle and prepare for those situations better, but also be more efficient um, with how we're using our uh, neurological resources. So all kinds of fun stuff there. All kinds of fun stuff. I love it. My ears perked up when I hear neurofeedback and biofeedback. I'm a huge fan. Can you talk a little bit about for people who maybe aren't super familiar with what neurofeedback and biofeedback are like how that helps athletes tangibly, like what it could look like. And do you need certifications to do that? Like talk about your process and how you use those tools. Yeah, perfect. So just in simple terms, everyone's taken their temperature before. And so you put the thermometer under your tongue or whatever that, you know, these, they have these awesome forehead, um, yeah, (laughs) or the infrared now has been really popular, you know, in the last, with the pandemic, um, you know, just laser somebody's head and it tells you their temperature. And so that's biofeedback. It's just information about what's going on inside your body. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a number of different types of biofeedback. Uh, we can look at things like temperature or skin temperature, um, or what's called skin conductance, which is the amount of perspiration or perspiration on like your fingertips, for example, which is really the quickest response, uh, your, your body's quickest response to stress. So a number of different things that we can look at there, heart rate variability, muscle tension, all those are different types of biofeedback. Mm-hmm. And then neurofeedback is kind of the same idea, giving you information about what's going on inside your brain. Um, and so with neurofeedback, um, I focus more on um, what's the activity in the frontal lobe. Um, there's a couple of different tools that I like to use uh, there, but really it's just about giving us information so that we can better adapt and train. You know, those things are hard to make them tangible as you alluded to, Carrie. Mm. And so how do I take my physiology or my neurology and make it something that I can kind of touch and, and see and feel and 
in a more tangible way. And so with biofeedback, actually, I've used that for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, athletes or military warfighters really love that because it, it gives them information about something that they didn't know was tangible. Sure. And so when I feel stressed, yeah, I can see that now. And usually like we're working with some type of an app that provides feedback on a screen. So I can see, mm-hmm. you know, oh, this means good. This means not so good. Right. Uh, and I can see when I feel more stressed or uh, we increase the cognitive demand and now there's more um, problem solving or we're using more brain resources, we can see that on a screen. And now I can use that information to regulate better by kind of dialing the intensity up and down. Mm-hmm. Okay. So are you using any sort of them or how are you actually making those connections from the screen to the body and brain? Yeah. Um, mostly just because it's easy for people to understand and, and easy to use is using a pulse oximeter. So it's just an easy way to get information about, and I usually mo- work mostly with heart rate and heart rate variability. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just kind of been, I think what I was exposed to early on in my career and, and continue sure. to use, but I find that really helpful to show people the impact um, that like, just something as simple as their breathing or their mental focus um, and how that influences their performance. Very cool. There's so many things that you can reach for in your bag of tricks. Those are interesting ones for sure. Can you talk a little bit about how you became interested in this field? Like, were you an athlete yourself? How did you become interested in the field of cognitive performance? That's a great question. I was an athlete myself and that's kind of what got me moving in that direction as a, to be honest, as a college athlete, I was blessed to have the opportunity to compete at the collegiate level, which was awesome. Um, but I was really frustrated as a student athlete because I just felt again and again, like I was not maximizing my capability mm. um, and, and that I would just, you know, I was better than I was able to bring to the competition surface. And, um, you know, at the end of my kind of collegiate career, if you will, I just felt like I left potential on the table. And so that really fueled me to, you know, to help other folks avoid that same situation. Sure. Um, and to, you know, to not have to look back and think what, you know, maybe what could have been, or even just, you know, I could have, I could have been better simply put. Um, and so through that pursuit of trying to figure that out on my own as a college athlete, um, I stumbled into this idea of sports psychology. Um, I think, uh, you know, my dad, sensing my desperation, found a, a book on, you know, mindset and mental training. And I'm like devouring this thing. I remember sitting on an airplane. I don't even know where I was headed, sitting on an airplane pouring over this book, working through the exercises and doing the self quizzes that were built in there. Yeah. Just trying to figure this out, taking notes like a madman. Uh, and all right, like, this is exactly what I needed. You know, that was pretty obvious early on in that process of, you know, I was a bit of a head case and emotional and would get frustrated and down on myself and, you know, all the things that we know are going to interfere with performance. Right. But I, you know, my coach, didn't know how to help me. My parents didn't know how to help me. I didn't have a, you know, my school didn't have a sports psychologist of, uh, of some sort. Um, so, you know, we just didn't have the resources available to, to know what to do. And so I just, you know, I had this sense of, man, you know, it's frustrating. I'm not, I'm not getting where I want to be. I'm better in practice than I am in competition. And in some situations I'm really great in other situations, I'm not very great. So what do I do with that? And I tried to you know, did absolutely the wrong thing. And I tried to put everything in that book into practice, like, you know, on Monday, for example, right? (laughs) Like, all right, great. I need to set goals. I need to visualize. I got to have a routine. And it was just overwhelming. And, you know, it was uh, like trying to rebuild everything from scratch, which was too much too fast. And so anyhow, um, along the way, I, you know, realized I was studying psychology at the time and that it was kind of this um, dream come true that I could combine um, my passion for helping people uh, be better versions of themselves, um, which is why I was really studying psychology and passionate about that, um, with my love for sports uh, and competition and teams and coaching. Um, so anyhow, that's kind of what got me started. Yeah, that's awesome. It's definitely helpful to have that background as an athlete. I can definitely relate to that as an athlete, trying to figure out a path and not having the access to resources and a sports psychologist or cognitive performance on staff. And, you know, you're just kind of with your hands up thinking like, how do I fix this? And like, is this just my destiny to be this athlete that's leaving something on the table? So frustrating. Right. So we're living in a space now where thankfully we have 
the internet. We have so many tools, so many resources. Schools have more funding to hire people to actually invest in people like you and me to, you know, get their teams and get their individuals to the next level. We've come a long way for sure. <laughs> so thankfully love, love your background. Yeah, that's, that's great. And as an athlete, I feel like, you know, it, it makes you more relatable when you're working with other high performers, right? You're speaking from experience and it's something that resonates with the people that you work with. You can tell if someone's been there, they've been through it. They've kind of sat in some of the shit and been uncomfortable with their performance at times. And so it helps you become better at what you do. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, the, what I love to, to kind of pinpoint is what, what, what stands in the gap, everybody, I don't care what walk of life you're in. We all, you know, at least, you know, when we're wired to, to continue to grow and get better and not everybody's exactly wired that way. And I understand that too, but when we see this gap from where I am to where I want to be makes such a huge difference. Um, and usually that's when folks are reaching out to folks like us, mm-hmm. right. Is that they've tried different things or they want to get somewhere and they're not really sure what the roadmap looks like, you know, how do, how do I get from here to there? Um, or they're frustrated like as I was, um, because, what I was doing wasn't quite getting me where I wanted to be. Um, and so being able to use that as a starting point, right? What are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? Uh, it, it is, maybe it's in your personal life. It's in your business life. It's in your athletic career. Um, you know, it's on the, you know, in the way that you're training your body and you want to push to, to new, uh, new levels. How do we do that? And, and getting the mind engaged and just being able to, I love to kind of expose the gap, if you will. Yeah, um, love it. You know, what are the things that in some cases it's kind of that, that um, unconscious competence? What are the things that we don't know? And now we uh, bring that to light um, and help now equip the way I think about it is, you know, equipping uh, and empowering people now to, to unleash their potential. Shining a light on the gaps. Yeah, the, the fun, uncomfortable stuff that people don't like to talk about, but that gets in the way, right? We That's right. talk about that. <laughs> so you've had such an interesting trajectory and I know you've worked with so many athletes and you also have spent some time working with military as well. Can you talk about what that role looked like in that context with your contracts working within the military? Yes, absolutely. So I've spent a large part of my career working within a military context. I spent 10 years working with the U.S. Army and U.S. Special, US Army Special Operations Units and then I spent, got to spend two years supporting fighter pilot training for the U.S. Air Force. So um, each context is definitely different, and I think I'm drawn to that. I love the variety um, and, and just helping, man, these, you know, these organizations that are so worthy of our, of our support, uh, helping them solve big problems um, in terms of you know, improving training efficiency and effectiveness um, saving training time, um, you know, in the business world, you know, things revolve around dollars. I think in a military context, more, you know, more so than finances, I think um, there's this huge economy of time. Um, every commander that I worked with, you know, is very concerned around how much time things take and how much time there is in a day and how much time between now and their next deployment and everything that had to happen between now and then. So, for them being able to save time and increase the efficiency of training was a huge asset. Um, so uh, to kind of give you a, um, some examples maybe about what that looked like, uh, when I first started working for the Army um, as a um, you know, performance consultant, if you will, mm-hmm. um, there was no you know, mandated, engage- uh, mandated engagement with us. So mm-hmm. we would, here we are, and you go knock on a leader's door, or you show up in a unit, um, you know, footprint somewhere and you just start talking to folks or you talk to the unit leader and say, you know, what is that gap, right? Um, of what you're trying to accomplish and, you know, where are your folks struggling a little bit or just, you know, what does it look like to get to the next level of training or performance or proficiency? Um, and again, every leader is very aware of what they're trying to where they're trying to move their organization to. Uh, It's just like working with a coach and being able to come alongside them and develop a game plan for how do we get, you know, how do we help you get from there, from here to there? 
Um, and you know, I'm looking at that through a mental performance lens um, and they're looking at the tactics and the techniques and all the things that they need to do to get there. Um, and I think what, what really intrigued me early on is that mental training is not separate. Um, a lot of times it gets kind of put in a box and in some ways, physical training as well. I think about the old model of athlete training, right? We're going to study film. Okay. Then we work out. Okay. Then we do drills on the field. And then if you were a very enlightened organization, you know, you had some maybe breathing or visualization or something, mm -hmm. you know, I'm thinking back to, you know, like the 1970s and eighties, really um, when those things became a little bit more popular and I mean a little bit, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, just some basics um, right. and kind of the self-help movement and things like that. Uh, motivational speakers fed into that, but in, in the military, you know, these things can't be separate. You know, I, I don't know how many times um, I spent on a, uh, a firing range of some sort or in a shoot house um, working with leaders and alongside soldiers on helping them execute under pressure um, and be able to put their training into action, you know, when it mattered. And so that means, you know, remembering the right, the right sequence of, of things to do or being confident enough to do it with intensity, um, with leaders on how to communicate uh, what needed to happen and paint a picture for their folks um, so that they knew exactly what to expect and set expectations, um, you know, how we're going to get, uh, get the job done. And so, um, you know, something as simple as, you know, sh firing a weapon um, is mental. Um, mm -hmm. It's what am I thinking about? Am I feeling confident? Am I managing my breathing? Am I keeping my composure? Am I seeing the right target? Uh, how do I, you know, identify the target? How do I not get too excited or too nervous and, and be able to execute and do, do my job because the people on the left and the right are counting on me to do that? Um, and even in, you know, with higher performing military organizations, it was really about next level. How do we get to the next level? What's keeping us from where we are now? And so for those organizations, it was um, really working with military leaders to push the envelope. Um, how do we add uh, more complexity to the task? How do we push people's buttons to see how they're going to respond when things don't go according to plan? And then walk them through a process to, to better manage those situations when they're tired and hungry and frustrated and nothing has, seems like it's gone well, but still be able to make good decisions um, to work as a team and to get to the finish line. Right. Um, so a lot of things around that. And one example um, that I think was just really fun uh, was we were working with an organization on preparing soldiers and young leaders to go to ranger school. Mm, okay. And what was most interesting about that is, is the installation I was at had a great program kind of in place for teaching kind of the tactics and the techniques for that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the nuts and bolts, if you will, uh, land nav, weapons assembly, um, you know, maneuvers, things that guys were going to need to be successful in ranger school. But we took a, a closer look at the folks that weren't passing uh, that weren't getting through and graduating, why not? Mm -hmm. And from that, we developed a targeted mental training approach to fill those gaps in a training context and working alongside the instructors and providing some education and training to the individual, you know, the junior leaders themselves. Uh, at the time when we started, that program was about on par with the Army's overall average graduation rate for Ranger School. And over the course of about a year and a half, initially we, um, as a group, right? And I'm not, certainly wouldn't take credit for the, the success uh, here myself by any means. We really didn't do a lot. We just took a targeted approach to it uh, from a mental training side. But ultimately they got to over double the Army's average graduation rate. Certainly raised a lot of eyebrows, but you know, those, those guys worked really hard. Um, we adjusted to the data and looking at what was making them successful or not and how to prepare the right folks to go and be successful. So, um, you know, a lot of that had to do with uh, maintaining composure and being confident and dealing with uncertainty and managing attention. Those are some of the core concepts. Yeah. 
That's so interesting. Before we were just talking about buy-in from athletes, a lot of buy-in, right? I'm very familiar with the carry community and the buy-in, how tricky that can be from, from yeah. outside contractors, right? And so I'm curious how you navigated that, how you got the buy-in from those leaders, from those commanders, and then yeah. maybe even extending to coaches as well, like how to, how to get buy-in from, from coaches who are wanting to address these gaps. That buy-in piece is critical, right? 100%. As the old adage says, you know, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so you really have to start there. Yeah. Um, you know, I want to, I've always tried to communicate, you know, my kind of my passion and motivation for helping those communities. Um, and I'm a naturally curious person, which is really helpful in those situations. Very helpful. Um, yes. <laughs> Cause you know, I, I know what I know and I'm confident in that, but I want to ask questions. In some cases, I'll ask questions. I already know the answer to just to hear their perspective on a particular context or what, 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 a, how they see a problem or how they see things developing or training strategy, whatever it might be. Um, and really try to build alliances. I'm, I'm not here to do your job for you. I'm here to help you accomplish your objectives. And that's, a, it's that simple. Um, and so we, we're going to have the same goals, you know, especially when you're talking to military leaders, what are they trying to accomplish? They're trying to get their folks ready um, for the challenges that lie ahead. Um, and and in, a, in a lot of cases, the uncertainty that comes with that. And so what are the tasks that they need to complete and what are the deficiencies that they're aware of and how do we, you know, help address those. And so being able to come alongside those leaders and kind of humbly say, you know, how can I help? Mm -hmm. um, and they go, I don't have any idea how you can help, you know, right? Like, <laughs> what do you, what do you do? What does that look like? And so being able to paint a picture for them about other organizations that I've supported, how we've helped them processes that we've used um, to improve performance, um, what that looks like and being able to make, keep things really concrete. Um, mm -hmm. I think particularly in the military and especially maybe even more so in the special operations communities uh, and, and uh, fighter pilots are very similar in this way. Um, they're rightly skeptical um, and they want things to be very tangible. Mm -hmm. So things that are a little more theoretical, nobody has time to listen to that. Right. But if you, if you can say, let me show you, and you walk them through something or walk them through a situation and help them see things differently, or I often invite them to war fighters that I'm working with or pilots that I'm working with. Hey, just here's a, you know, here's a concept, take it for a test drive, right? Mm -hmm. Let's, let's, let's try it out and let's see what happens. Yeah. Um, and being able to rely on that experience of having done that for a long time. I think they pick up confidence from that as well. Uh, okay. Like, you know, at this point in my career, Hey, this guy's done this for a long time. He's helped, you know, these other people, like I'll try it out at least, you know? Right. And so that's, that's really helpful. I think in some cases, leaders sometimes are, where are easier to get to buy in because it is that conversation about, I'm here to help you get, you know, accomplish your objectives for the organization. Um, and I'm just another asset, you know, another resource. Um, and oftentimes become um, kind of a, another messenger for the same things that they've been trying to get across maybe to their organization for a while. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, and just, you know, bringing, putting a different voice to it in a different context, improving performance off, often has this a, um, secondary effect of re, uh, decreasing negative behaviors in an organization, in a military organization. It's just really hard to be high performing and do stupid things at the same time. For sure. Um, and you see this at all level of sport too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you'll have some athletes that are maybe just really awesome in certain situations, but over, you know, they can't, they're not consistent. Right. Well, why aren't they consistent? Because they're not, you know, necessarily making the right choices day in and day out. So, um, it, you know, I think the hard, the, the harder part is sometimes the, the, the person, you know, that has the, their boots on the ground, it's, you know, it, they're the ones that are going in under, under pressure. They're the ones that are, um, you know, in the firefight or, you know, whether that be on the ground or in the, in the air. Um, and so they really want to know, how can you help me? Um, and if you haven't been where I've been and you haven't done what I've done, 
you better be really good at what you do um, sure. in order to gain trust. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so I think that's just so huge. So being able to be credible and not just talk a good game, but be able to back it up yeah. uh, and do that again and again and again. And when you, you know, you help people see results uh, because they tried things and they saw success and they understand that you're, you have their best interests in mind. Like going back to, like I said, show that you care. That goes such a long way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in the, in the fighter community, it was really difficult because working with single seat, single seat fighters, um, I literally can't even go and do what they, you know, um, with ground troops, I can tag along and be in the field and in a shoot house or walking through the woods when it's snowing and raining. And well, by the way, get out there when it's snowing and raining. And that, you know, shows that you care too. Yes, um, but sure. when you, in the fighter community, that was more difficult because I just physically couldn't go where they go mm-hmm. and being able to, again, you know, ask questions and we really focus in that community more on the cognitive process of the way that they, uh, how quickly they are able to pick up visual information. 80% of the, the way that athletes or warfighters um, make decisions is based on 80% of visual information. So how do we process that visual information? How do we increase our brain's processing speed so that we can make fast and accurate decisions and ultimately maintain in this, in their context, a combat advantage is just paramount to the way I've always seen it is, you know, help them um, go do what they need to do and get back home again uh, safely. And in one, you know, in one piece. And so putting things into context and being able to, and then add value. Yeah. I think that's everything. The curiosity piece, especially is everything. It takes a humble and truly genuinely curious person to ask questions. And that approach is, is, is really genuine leading with curiosity and when that approach of, Hey, just try this, you know, see, see what happens, like see what mm-hmm. you get from it with absolute humbleness. And, you know, it really does go a long way. What I found helpful is being confident in what, you know, um, mm-hmm. And also being keenly aware of what you don't know. It's very um, important, as important and, for sure. Yeah. And, and being willing to investigate the things that you think, you know, and that's where a lot of being able to ask good questions, better understand the the situation, the context, the dynamics within a, an organization, sure. um, a unit, a team are so important um, to, I guess, in some ways, trust your instincts, but verify as well, mm-hmm. right. To, to put that into a different context. Um, and that uh, helps you um, better understand where you can add value. Um, so being confident in what, you know, and, and seeking to better understand the things that maybe you don't know, or, or at least you just think, you know, I know just for me, uh, I mean, from a career perspective, the, the more I learn the things I'm very aware of that I don't know yet. Yeah. Um, And so there's always more to learn. There's always room to grow. And um, just, I think about being in terms of the world of cognitive performance um, keeps it really exciting for me. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I'm sure you've worked with some coaches as have I, who have alluded to them knowing, knowing the things, and maybe they don't need your help and, and you're going to take my job and step on my toes or right. They're really resistant to having someone external come in. So maybe what you've noticed in the coaches and personnel you've worked with who are open to you coming in and, and maybe addressing like some common misconceptions, like maybe there's just a miscommunication between what you're actually there to do and what they think you're there to do. Does that kind of make sense? Absolutely. No, I love that. Uh, I think there's a lot of misconceptions, um, around that. And again, just that being able to ask the right questions is really helpful. I think in leaders and coaches that I've worked with that were resistant or hesitant, um, to, um, to have my assistance or help or support, um, more often than not wanted to, they were trying to prove something that they could do it on their own, that they could achieve a certain level of success without extra support. Um, and more often than not, you know, it really didn't work out in their favor. Um, and I can, you know, point to several specific instances when that uh, turned out to be the case, sadly, mm-hmm. um, you know, where someone wanted to, maybe they had a chip on their shoulder or it was kind of their shot to put their imprint on an organization and it just really didn't go well. Sure. Um, you know, when I'm talking to coaches, 
you know, 30 years ago, coaches did everything. Uh, they were, you know, they were the head coach. They advised on everything from nutrition to strength training to mindset. Um, What's wrong with that? What could possibly travel, go wrong? You know, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, but I think as, uh, as the world of performance has evolved to the level of specificity that we see today, it's just not feasible. Um, I know some coaches that honestly are really good at understanding the mental game. And some of them are also really good at communicating it to their athletes. Mm. The trouble is they just don't have time to do that. For sure. Yeah. And so you don't have time to be the strength coach either. That's why you have a dedicated or, you know, at least a dedicated strength coach for your team to train them when you're not there. Yeah. Uh, Cause you have other responsibilities or you have a, a team of strength coaches and athletic trainers and physical therapists that are taking care of the bodies of your athletes to make sure that they're ready for game day on the mental side. I think coaches are starting to figure out that they need to approach it the same way. Yeah. I need to trust somebody to manage the mind of my athletes. Um, and oftentimes I've worked more with coaches and leaders. Um, some in some cases than I do with the athletes or, or the operators themselves. Sure. Um, those folks, you know, leaders and coaches need support. They need a sounding board to validate their ideas. Um, sometimes again, I'm just the messenger. We're talking about creating a culture or a high performance environment and the coaches and, and coaching staff doesn't have the time to, to put into that. Right. So we meet, we discuss, we figure out what that needs to look like. And then yeah, I kind of take the bull by the horns and run with it from there. Um, becoming part of that organization and playing, just playing a role um, that again, helps, helps that leader um, and helps that organization get where they want to go, get to this, the level of performance that they want to get to. Um, You know, I did that with an entire athletic department in one instance, um, working with the athletic director, they needed to rebuild that entire culture of, of an athletic department that really had a losing culture for a decade. Mm. Um, And it just, you know, it wasn't, wasn't working. It wasn't the results that anybody wanted. Um, it was just, you know, they were discouraged. Yeah. And so rightly so. Um, And so how do we turn that around? We start putting the pieces together and I was able to, to come alongside um, their department staff and some key coaches within that organization that had, you know, were willing to do things differently that had a a bigger vision of where they wanted to go and help them get there. Um, and, and with coaches, I think, you know, coaching the mindset, as I said, some coaches maybe are really good at understanding what their players need and how to motivate them. That's awesome. Fantastic. Like you feel their confidence, you keep them motivated, you focus their attention, um, on the next opponent and focusing on the process. You know, you hear a lot of things like that. And some coaches are phenomenal at that. Perfect. Right. Well, let me do, let me add something different to your toolkit. Let's talk about how we're training the way that your athletes see, decide, and act, and act and execute. How are they making decisions on the court, the field, or the course? How are we training them to see the right things? How are we training them to stay a step ahead of the competition? And that's, uh, the, in my opinion, that's kind of the next level of mental performance and, and what I call more cognitive performance. We're looking at the neurocognitive processes of high performance and really training the mechanisms that allow athletes to see better, to make better decisions and to react better under pressure, um, especially in late game situations, actually. And so great. If a coach is of the mind and and again, some are really good at managing the kind of the mindset, if you will, of their players, I think, and some just think they are right. (laughs) Not here to judge, um, but results kind of results don't lie. I guess that's some people say, but there's always more that we can add to that. We can get more detailed again. You know, if you follow the, the trajectory of strength and conditioning, you know, it was just pick up heavy things and put them down again. And then there became a method to it. And now it's very scientific. Um, I kind of gravitate, um, towards that approach in cognitive performance, um, because I got put in a lot of positions where leaders and coaches were like, Hey, prove to me that this works, prove it to me that you're making a difference. Prove it to me that using that strategy or technique, mental technique or breathing strategy or whatever it is, is actually making a difference is, you know, okay, 
you know, are folks more confident or they're able to manage stress better. And so using technology has become a, a key facet of the way that I operate mm-hmm. within organizations um, because it empowers the athlete themselves, but it also provides good feedback to the coaching staff. Um, and who doesn't like some numbers to see that we're, things are moving in the right direction. Um, and in some cases, you know, alert you to uh, situations that you didn't know were there or deficiencies that you didn't know were there either on a collective or on an individual level. And now we can address those again to maximize performance. Sure. Yeah, no, the data is important. I think coaches have come a long way too. I think there's still obviously coaches out there that lead with ego. There's a lot of great coaches out there that realize that wearing so many hats is going to create burnout and stress Mm -hmm. for them. And that it's not super tangible for one person to do all the things. So, um, bringing in support, as you said, and it's really like about the verbiage, right? I love the verbiage that you're kind of bringing alongside what you do as well the support you're accentuating, you're highlighting what they already do. So again, softening that intro, the integration of you into their system, into their program, once they stop seeing you or any change or support as the enemy, you're, you're just an addition to what, Mm -hmm. you know, to support what they're already doing. I think it's really helpful language to kind of bring someone along and to add to that buy-in, you know what I mean? Um, And so I wanted to talk to you about what some of your, favorite go-to tools are for, for addressing stress and anxiety with athletes. We talk a lot about, I'm big on breath work. So breath work is, is really my jam, but there's so many tools uh, that we've already talked about. So I just want to get your perspective on what some of your go-to favorites are. Yeah. Well, I love talking about stress and anxiety because it is important both on and off the field or the court or the course. Um, particularly, you know, as you've seen statistics over the last decade rise significantly in the amount of stress and anxiety and depression that specifically student athletes uh, or even professional athletes are experiencing. Um, it's a big topic. Um, and I, I love that it's finally getting the attention. You know, it's not this underground hidden, um, you know, vulnerability that athletes have, but it's something that, you know, is now being talked about so that it can be addressed um, more appropriately. So, I think that's huge. When I talk about stress and anxiety, you know, I love to start on the performance side uh, because that's usually where people are more willing to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, hey, if we help you perform better under pressure, help you maintain your composure under stress, help you be more, you know, like a quarterback poised in the pocket um, or more clutch and being able to, you know, be be able to, you know, your team can count on you in those key situations at the end of games and competitions, you know, athletes love that. Right. Yeah. That's your and soft so, opening to really getting in there and talking about yeah, some good stuff. Right. <laughs> right. And you know, they're like, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I want that. I need that. I, you know, I want to be the person that is reliable under pressure. Um, yes. You know, I, I'll admit that I, you know, that get, I get affected by stress sometimes and, um, you know, I don't shoot the ball as well, or I drop a pass or, you know, what I'm late, I'm hesitant to respond. Um, and so being able to talk about composure is really huge. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of terms for that, right. Um, are we talking about composure or poise or just self-control or being able to manage your emotions? You know, it's all tied together. Um, so this is where I love using biofeedback, mm-hmm. um, one of my, one of my favorite tools here, because what, what I'll do is I'll hook people up to biofeedback and then put them in stressful situations and highlight to them. I know how to push your buttons <laughs> and I can show you, uh, in live data that you're stressed and how now let's talk about how to implement a strategy to manage that stress. Mm-hmm. And when they can start to see that I can change my stress level in real time to affect my performance, that's a game changer. So um, using biofeedback to do that is huge. Um, Being able to show them the influence that stress has. And particularly as we increase the, you know, I work a lot with cognitive load and cognitive complexity. um, and, And the more that we increase that, you know, our our body responds, right? We have a sympathetic nervous system that responds to stress. Mm-hmm. It's designed to do that. Number one, the first thing I ever learned as an athlete actually about this, and I had no clue there was science behind it till years later, 
I was, I had a, I was preparing for a race. Um, and my coach said, you know, Hey, how are you feeling? I told him, yeah, yeah. Got a lot of butterflies today, if I'm honest. Right. And he's like, perfect. I, I wasn't even going to let you run today. If you didn't have some butterflies, cause that shows me you care. I just remember like, what, what is he talking about? Right. Like, how is this? Like, let me tell you, this does not feel good. How is this going to help me? You know? Yeah. And you know, probably, I don't know, uh, five, six, 10 years later, I realized, Hey, wait a minute. There's actually a lot of science behind yeah. what, what he said to me. He was, you know, the old like gray wolf coach, you know, that just knew everything. <laughs> oh, I love fantastic. That. Yeah. So we're, you know, working with high performers today, being able to demonstrate that to them in tangible ways, increase the cognitive load or the cognitive complexity to see how their body responds to stress and then teach them how do I, how do I keep my composure, um, you know, without redlining my RPMs, if you will, mm -hmm. um, how do I stay focused on the task? How do I, um, keep my mind quiet, um, and stay engaged in the process. Mm -hmm. This is some, definitely some fun ways to do that. And, you know, each sport is a little bit different in the way that you apply pressure or the way that you increase the cognitive demand that an athlete is experiencing, but using biofeedback to show that to them and then coach them through a breathing technique or a mental focusing technique. So for example, one of the things I love is, um, you know, I'll kind of create a situation where an athlete's uh, going to mess up, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, like I, either it's an almost impossible task, it's just outside their skill level, whatever the case is, sure. uh, I set them up for failure. Congratulations, you're working with them a mental performance person, right? Like that's how that works. Uh, and so, but when that happens, I'm going to point out to you on the feedback, Hey, look how you responded. And how long does it take you to get back in the game mentally? How, how long does it take you to regain your focus and your composure? Yeah. And so if, when we make a mistake, we have that, like, Ooh, you know, I messed up. Are you still thinking about that? Or are you thinking about the next play, the next ball, the next catch, the next decision? Okay. Um, and if we can shorten that gap, that time period of mental lapse, then we can significantly reduce the amount of mental mistakes and increase your response time and accuracy for the next, the next play, the next task, the next, whatever it is, mm -hmm. uh, the next shot, the next hole, you know, whatever, whatever the context that you're talking about. So uh, being able to show that to athletes, coach them through a strategy in the moment, and then walk them through that same situation again, mm -hmm. where you set them up for failure, or you've given them a task that's just outside their comfort zone. How do I do that? Um, and how do I respond to it? And being able to stay focused in the present moment, uh, regardless of the outcome. And that's really what being in the present moment is all about anyway. That's, you know, that's mindfulness training. There's a lot of things that we can tie into that, sure. but show them what does it feel like and how to reproduce that on demand is really uh, where the magic happens. Um, and yeah. so if we do that in the context of how you manage stress and how you manage anxiety, you know, before you even start the task, I can see, you know, maybe that your stress is spiking because I've just defined a task that, you know, you're probably not going to be successful right. at. Yeah. And before we even started, yeah, I can see that your stress response is kicking up, right. right? Let's manage that. And then, okay, now we can talk about how to manage the day-to-day -day stressors of being an athlete, of being a high-performance athlete or being a student athlete and all the, the things that come with that. And so again, actually, I really love heart rate variability for that as well mm -hmm. um, and teaching athletes to manage um, their heart rate variability on a day-to-day -day basis and get a morning reading mm -hmm. check-in to see how am I doing today and then utilize, you know, take, set aside, build into your routine 10 minutes or 15 minutes, or of course, you know, the gold standard 20 minutes of like resonant frequency breathing, for example, where we're hitting a specific tar training target again and again and again, every day um, helps just ma manage our, our um, daily stress level. Right. And also, I mean, there's so many additional benefits that come with that in terms of um, in improving our cognitive efficiency, improving our sleep. Um, the way that we communicate, our immune system functioning. I mean, so many other things that are really beneficial for athletes specifically or high performers in general. Right. Um, it's, and it's an easy place to start. 
okay. um, in terms of managing your performance on a regular basis and, and really, you know, what does it look like to be a high performer? It's about building high performance habits. Right. It's all about the habits. And that'll lead me into our next question here. I'm curious what uh, some of your the high performing habits are and what your own mindfulness routine looks like. I'm big on mindfulness. So what are some of your habits that make it into your mindfulness routine that allow you to be the best version of yourself and show up for your athletes and high performers every day? All right. So put me on the spot here, me specifically, you specifically. Yes. Oh man. You can be, I'll allow you to be, I'll allow it. If you're, if you want to be vague and say, okay, my (laughs) meditation sleep, but yeah, if you have any specific variations of interesting habits that you do that, that allow you to be high performing. Well, I have learned to be habit driven. Um, you know, James clear, I guess, famously pointed out, um, along with Charles Duhigg, uh, that a huge percentage of our day-to-day decisions as, uh, as a human being are habit-based. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I've kind of learned that over the years. And now, you know, my wife kind of pokes fun at me sometimes because I'll just execute the routine, you know, execute the habit, uh, yeah. even when it wasn't necessarily necessary. Um, but that's how I'm wired, you know? Yeah. So um, I'm a big habits person. So the, the way I start my day is really critical um, to just the, the way setting me, setting myself up for success on a day-to-day basis. Um, so I get up early. I'm not naturally a morning person. I tackled that a long time ago because I knew that that's what was going to make, yeah, that was part of the recipe for, you know, for being a high performer. Um, so I, I get up early. Um, I start with hydration, um, because my body hasn't had anything to drink for, uh, at least seven hours, which is, I know that because I monitor my sleep pretty well. And I know that seven, seven hours is kind of my minimum, uh, for continued success and, and having a high energy and things like that. Seven and a half is better, um, for me personally, as I've tracked and monitored that over the years. So I get up, I hydrate, I move, and typically I do some, uh, some yoga in the morning, gets the blood flowing, gets me moving, loosens, you know, loosens uh, my muscles up a little bit as I'm getting a little bit older, I guess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then I do some mindfulness meditation, usually outside. Um, nice. I like to do, I get my eyes open and get sunlight, um, which is a big, uh, I've learned a lot about that in recent years, just the importance of sunlight on our circadian rhythm and our mental health, our emotional stability, so many things, um, you know, to, to fuel our focus, all kinds of, of benefits there. Um, so getting, and I live in Arizona, so it's not really hard to get the sunlight. Um, so <laughs> yeah. that's helpful, but that's part of doing those things at the same time there. Um, and then I have some spiritual practices that I go through as well, um, just to start my day off kind of with the right mindset. Um, from a faith perspective and in quiet time and prayer and things there and some journaling as, as kind of finishes that off, I guess. And then yeah. by then the family is up and running and it's, you know, breakfast time. And, and usually uh, I've actually changed my, my process a little bit. I used to have um, caffeine earlier in the morning and now I wait mm. um, about an hour and a half or so. And that's been an interesting adjustment, but I think really helpful um, to just, again, continuously, you know, tinkering with, with what's going to set us up for success. So that's been great. And then usually I'm, I'm jumping into the day, really conscious about managing distractions. So I try to be mindful of when I'm checking email or social media or things like that. Um, and dedicating some time in the morning to typically deeper work, mm-hmm. um, things where I need to be creative or, you know, problem solving deep in thought. Uh, and then, after lunch, um, usually I'll do um, some neurofeedback of my own uh, just to awesome. get me kind of redialed in. Um, I also take, I didn't mention this, uh, the first thing actually I do in the morning um, along with the water is get a morning HRV reading nice. so I can track over time how I'm doing with that. So then in the afternoon, I kind of do my practice with that um, and using some neurofeedback for that as well to d- make sh- kind of rejuvenate, refocus, and, and get ready to 
crank again in the afternoon yeah um, and get back to it and then typically I, i'll do a workout get my exercise in the afternoon which uh, isn't necessarily ideal in some ways i kind of go back and forth with that that just seems um in this season of life where it fits best yeah. with all the other things that are going on but uh, in doing that you know i'm a little more fatigued in the afternoon and so being able to get that workout in actually changes the rate of perceived exertion uh, right. that i bring to that workout which ultimately is beneficial to, to me in the long run. Um, but I'd actually like to get a little bit more cardio in, in the morning. So I'm uh, working on increasing that just because of the benefits that come with cardiovascular training and neuroscience, uh, our ability to learn our mental health and, and the things that go there. Awesome. I'm always so fascinated. It's one of my favorite parts about doing the podcast is listening and kind of seeing where everyone's routine takes them and what are some overlapping habits that we have and what are some things that I could try the HRV reading. Very cool. So that's one that isn't in my routine right now, but sounds, sounds really cool. And I think one thing that every high performer I've had on this podcast has with their mindfulness routine is that they make space for the slowness and the stillness, like in the morning, they really try to preserve that morning time for as much as possible and leave room for that creativity to kind of happen and surface during that time as well. So I think taking advantage of that doing some of the, some of the hard things, and then having some space for quiet time and reflection. It's so awesome. Cause then we're walking the walk when we're talking to athletes and high performers that we work with preaching how important it is for rest and like reflection time and to look at our goals and think about where yeah. we're going. We're doing this stuff too. So I think it's really transparent when we're not doing the work and we're trying to do the work, it doesn't come across as genuine, right? It's so important for us to be in alignment with our habits, right? Yeah. Well, I think it makes it makes you relatable. So when people are struggling to like, where do I fit this in in my day or with all the other things that I'm juggling, right. you know, to be able to be empathetic in those moments, because you've been there right. and, and you are still there in some aspects of your process and understand that it takes discipline. And so, you know, you just, to be a high performer, I think one of the things that I've learned is to perform at your maximum capability or your maximum potential, you have less choices than you think. And that's not a bad thing. Just to get where you want to go, you, you know, there are fewer options to choose from Right. Because the path is narrow, not everybody can get there, and so we have to make we have to do the hard things um, and being being willing to do them consistently and find time, as you pointed out, Carrie, for the things that are really important that you know are going to be a part of your process. Isn't easy. If it was easy, everyone would do it, mm-hmm. but it isn't. And so I tell people all the time. I tell my daughter all the time. Life's full of choices. How do you want to use yours? Yeah. I love that. I love what you said about fewer choices. When you actually look at what you want to do and where you want to go, there are fewer choices and we make things more complicated with the number of distractions that we allow to be, you know, happening throughout the day. And so I think the decision-making fatigue is definitely a thing. And I talk about that a lot in the work that I do. I'm like, make things easier on yourself. Let's do the hard stuff first. And then depending on what you're sleep archetype is if you're a person who has more energy in the morning or afternoon or night, many of us have struggle with that energy and that, that dip in the afternoon. So if we know that, and we're still not doing the hard shit, then we're self-sabotaging, right? So we have to pay attention to doing those things and making ourselves proud in the morning and building the foundation for that discipline so that we can be high-performing mm-hmm. Otherwise, we're leaving too much up to chance, right? That's right. Yeah. So just wrapping up here the question I always ask is what advice you would give to your 20 year old self. Think about 20 year old, Justin, where he was. sounds like you were racing in college, right? Like what advice would you give to that kid? Some scary thoughts right there. (laughs) (laughs) What would he want to hear? What would have been beneficial for for him to hear advice wise? Yeah, I think I love that question because there's always so much that we learn along the way, you know, if only I knew then what I know now. Right. Yeah. And so I think, you know, for me um, as an athlete, um, what would benefit, what would have benefited me the most 
would be or to as a just, person. It could be like, yeah, yeah. I, I was yeah. thinking about that as well. As an athlete, I think just go all in. I talk to, to teams about this so much now because we hold back. We're scared. We're fearful. Um, you know, we get drugged down by what I call the WDFs, the worries, the doubts, the fears. Um, and that was me as an athlete. I was worried about messing up, letting my teammates down, letting my coach down, making the, you know, um, choosing the wrong shot at the wrong time, right. Or, you know, costing my team a win. And so I played scared a lot. And I think that was a lot of the frustration that I experienced and, and why I was better in practice is because I didn't have that pressure and I didn't know how to, how to manage the pressure, but I think just go all in, you're going to be at your best when you commit. Um, and, and when you just kind of, when you just go for it mm-hmm. uh, and, and don't hold back. And so and I've talked to teams a lot about that now because um, I just, you can see it. Uh, I can see it. Coaches can see it um, and, and how to work through that. But that as an athlete, um, that would, would have been so helpful and having somebody there to, you know, explain to me how to do that and, you know, how, how to push, how to set fear aside, you know, it's, it's always going to be along for the ride. Um, but how do we, how do we commit anyway? Um, and I think, you know, as a person, um, I would have loved to have started developing, um, that those high performance habits earlier in life. Mm. Um, you know, I think in, in a lot of ways, um, you know, just this desire to continue to learn and grow, um, was there for me in some areas, but not in others. And so I think as a person, um, you know, build those high performance habits can, and, and really, again, in a different way, commit to be the best version of yourself in a more well-rounded, uh, kind of holistic approach to life kind of way. Yeah. Cool. I love that. The fear is always going to be there. I love that you said that the fear is going to always be there. How do we find a way to, to commit to it, you know, to still, to still do the thing. Cause I think there's this illusion sometimes that the fear is not going to be there. And we're just all of a sudden going to be like, have this glow and be in the zone, like all the time, um, seamlessly. And it's just not like, no, the ugly, the ugly shit, like the hard emotions, like those things are still there. How do we work with them? You know? So I love that. I love that quote. I'll put that. I'll put that. I've worked with Justin. (laughs) I've worked with some, you know, high-performing individuals and a lot of different contexts that have every right, um, you know, to operate without fear. Um, and it just, it's not the case, you know, there's always, um, fear of letting people down. I mean, in the military, that's the number one motivator, if you will, that I've heard time and time again. So I heard somebody say, and I wish I could remember exactly where it came from. Cause I always happy to give credit where it's due, but emotions are like toddlers. You can't put them in the trunk <laughs> and you can't let them drive, but they're always going to be there. They're going to be along for the ride. And so, uh, yes. just m- stick them in the back seat, strap them down. Yeah. And, you know, and sometimes you just have to kind of deal with, uh, you know, the screaming from the back, <laughs> the back and go. go for it. Kids um, going to scream. You got to make it through target anyway. Let's do it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> exactly. And so, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, emotions are, are very much the same way. And, and we can't wait till we feel good to perform well. We can't wait until I feel like getting that extra workout, you know, to lace up and get in the gym or hit the road, yeah. whatever the case is there. So just, I don't know. I love that. It paints such a, a vivid mental picture uh, that I can really relate to. Yeah, no, I, I very much appreciate that. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. We have to, we have to do it anyway. I like the mood follows action. We're going to feel better after we do the thing, but if we're waiting until we feel good, right? Like nothing's ever going to come to us. Right? It's not a good time to do a lot of things, but we have to just go for it. That's right. Yeah. Awesome. Justin, thank you so much for joining me today on our podcast. I loved our conversation. And if people want to find you, get a hold of you, where can they go? Thanks, Gary. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's been super fun just talking about high performance and, and the things that we love and helping people get where they're trying to go. Um, people can stay tuned in. They can check out theexcellingedge.com. They can follow along on social media at Justin R. Foster, both on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I'd love to connect. Awesome. Thank you so much, Justin. And yeah, I look forward to catching up again soon. And thank you so much again for being on the podcast. Thanks, Gary.
All right. Take care. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Ready, Set, Mindful podcast. Make sure to join us next week as we have another episode for you. If you haven't checked out readysetmindful.com, make sure to check out our free mental toolkit to optimize your performance. And if you're not following us on social, make sure you do that. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Ready, Set, Mindful. We're also at readysetmindful.com. Make sure to leave us a review if you liked what you heard. Always look forward to seeing what your guys' thoughts are. We will catch you on the next episode.